Hi church family, my name is Marnie and today I'm going to be reading 1 Samuel 24, 1-12. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord's, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is a beautiful spring day out there. Uh, so, you know, after our time together this morning, uh, I hope you get to go out into your garden to get some sun on your face, do some uh, exercise out there. Uh, but what a, what a precious time we have right now uh, together, uh, even virtually, but together we take God's word. Please open it up to that passage. And um, we're going to hear God speak to us. Uh, and convict our hearts, uh, and then afterwards we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together, remembering the precious death of Jesus uh, for our sins. Uh, but I want to kick off by showing you two people. Uh, they're kind of anonymous people, but both 25 years old, same stage of life, both unvaccinated. Now, the girl, up until now, she has never really felt the need to get vaccinated. You know, she thinks, I'm young, I'm healthy, COVID-19, it's really something that affects older people, so I don't have anything to worry about. But now she's kind of changed to tune uh, because the government's saying that there are freedoms available for people who are vaccinated. And so she's kind of, you know, weighted up again and she's thinking, man, I don't want to miss out on hanging out with my friends and so on. So she's decided to get vaccinated. Um, now, the guy on the right, on the other hand, um, he hasn't wanted to get vaccinated, uh, but it's partly because he's weighing it up in his head and he just feels, he just doesn't feel morally right about it. 
Uh, he, he's got a conscience problem with it. And so he's facing the coming months with something of a bit of anxiety because he knows his, if he decides to remain unvaccinated, then it will limit his freedom, but he still wants to do what's right. So which one of these two do you most identify with? I've got to say, whilst I am already vaccinated myself and I don't have any concerns about the vaccine, uh, no moral concerns, I really sympathise with the guy in this scenario because he's making a decision based on principles, based on what he thinks is right. Whereas the girl, her decision is purely based on what's going to bring about the best long-term outcome, what's going to bring about the most freedom, and I'll do whatever I need uh, to head in that direction. Which brings us to our Bible passage for today. Now, the Bible passage today is not about COVID-19 and vaccinations, but it does have a lot to say about our conscience and the importance of having a clear conscience before God. How to stand before the holy God of the universe with a clear conscience. Uh, that's what the topic is today. I love the drama of 1 Samuel 24. So thanks Mel and Sally for kind of opening it up for us. Uh, but I've called this chapter a matter of conscience in the cave. David is on the run from King Saul. And David has this motley crew of kind of misfits that have come to him and have gathered around him. Saul and his 3,000 soldiers are hunting David down with the attempt to kill him. And David and his men have, have sought refuge in a cave. They're hiding in a cave in the wilderness while Saul and his 3,000 men comb the area searching for him. <clears throat> and Saul is... Busting, right? Busting to go to the toilet. Um, and in, in, in the desert, no toilets around. Uh, so Saul heads into the cave to relieve himself. I take it he needed to, like, do a poo. Um, now, it seems to me that a person is at their most vulnerable when they are squatting down, relieving themselves. Um, but you know, in the quietness of a cave in the midst of the wilderness with 3,000 men outside to protect you, Saul had every reason to kind of feel safe, uh, you know, as safe as possible. Little did he know that David and his 400 men are kind of lurking in the shadows at the back of the cave. And they are whispering advice to David. Hey, David. Here is the moment. God has given your enemy Saul into your hands. Go on, get up, strike him and kill him. And so David sneaks up behind Saul with his sword at the ready. Saul is completely oblivious and David strikes. He cuts. He cuts the corner off Saul's robe. And you just think, what an anticlimax. Uh, that's not exactly how we expected it to play out. So then Paul, uh, David sneaks back into the shadows of the cave. Saul finishes up what he was doing 
Then he heads out, still oblivious, right? He's probably feeling relieved, but completely unaware of the drama that had just taken place in the cave. Now look at verse five. David was conscience stricken. And he says to his men in verse six, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or to lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Now we don't know exactly what was going on in David's mind as he snuck up behind Saul, but I reckon there's a very good chance he was weighing up whether to take Saul's life or not. Uh, Should I kill Saul or just teach him a lesson? But whatever the case, we see here a big difference between David's conscience and the conscience of his men. Um, So let me explore conscience for a moment. Our conscience is kind of something within us by which we pass moral judgment uh, on ourselves. Uh, Our conscience is kind of, you think about that pang of guilt you feel when you do the wrong thing or when you're tempted to do the wrong thing and you just feel that kind of gut, ugh, you know, uh, that, that's, I think that's what we're talking about with the conscience. The problem is sometimes our conscience lets us down. So I want to distinguish between two things. One is how we feel about something, our conscience, and the other is real guilt, real right and wrong. Sometimes we feel guilty about things that don't really matter, like picking your nose. Now, uh, sorry to pick that example. I know it's not a healthy habit. It's not a pleasant habit, but it's not sin, right? It's not a morally problematic thing to do. Uh, I'm not recommending it. I'm just putting it out there. Uh, For some vegetarians, eating meat is totally against their conscience. And so if they eat meat, they feel guilty about it. But God says, no, it's fine to eat meat. Now, on the other hand, sometimes we don't feel guilty when we should. Uh, Sometimes we don't feel guilty about things that really are sin. And I think David's men fitted into that category there in the cave. They would have killed Saul in a heartbeat. They would have done it with a clear conscience. That's why David sharply rebukes his men, because for David... The ends never justifies the means. Just because, just because we want Saul dead doesn't mean we take matters into our own hands and kill him. Now, as God's people, we want to honour God in all that we do. And so as much as possible, we want to bring those two circles together so that our conscience and the way we feel aligns with what God's word and what he has said. Um, So that when ethical issues come up, and there's a whole lot of ethical issues our society deals with, like abortion, euthanasia, a whole bunch of things. When these things come up, we as God's people don't just make decisions based on whatever is going to bring the best outcome for me personally. We make decisions based on what is right in the eyes of God. So my friend 
uh, you know, the, 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 the guy and the girl I mentioned at the start, the guy was not merely hypothetical. I had this conversation with a fellow, a Christian fellow, um, and he was wrestling with the vaccination. Uh, and as we chatted about it, as he thought about it and read more about it, he came to a decision where he became confident that he could step forward and get a vaccine without doing the wrong thing in God's eyes. But I honour him because we Christians make decisions based on what is right. And so I honour the way he wrestled it through and didn't just fall in line with what everyone else is doing. What is honouring to God? What is in line with God's will? That is the basis on which we as God's people make decisions. So this episode in the cave ends with David coming out of the cave, calling out to Saul across the valley. May, so look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. So David's saying, I'm not going to seek revenge myself. I'm going to leave vengeance to God. And Saul responds in tears. Saul acknowledges he is in the wrong and David is in the right. And then Saul and his men pack up and they head home. They give up the chase. So we come to chapter 25 and our next Bible reading. I'll cut to the video. Good morning, everyone. My name is Graham Castle. I'll be reading from the Bible this morning for 1 Samuel, chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. So you might like to get it and uh, read along with me. 1 Samuel 25, 1 to 13. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, and he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. And when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they're at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favourable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David said this to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. 
and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. So I've called uh, this chapter A Conscience Preserved by a Peacemaker. In chapter 25, we meet a man with an unfortunate name, Nabal. Uh, Now, all my children have biblical names, Micah, Daniel, Sarah. Uh, But parents, I recommend before you give your child a biblical name, you actually work out what it means. Um, And I don't recommend you call your son Nabal because it means fool, right? And you might have good reason to call your son Nabal, but I I recommend you don't. Uh, But this fool Nabal personally offends David. See, David David and his men are still living as refugees on the edges of society in the wilderness. Uh, There are now 600 of them. And they, nearby to where David and his men are, lives Nabal, right on the edge of the wilderness. And Nabal and his family have prospered because David and his men have been offering protection. Uh, But when David asks Nabal for help, for food, for supplies, and so on, Nabal refuses. Uh, And that really ticks David's sense of justice off. Uh, David is so offended, he becomes inflamed with anger. He gets his men men prepared to go and kill Nabal, but also every single man in Nabal's household. And you think, is this the same David? Is this the same David who has just rebuked his men harshly for even considering killing Saul? And here he is escalating a personal offense into a violent bloodshed of revenge. Now, by God's providence, Nabal the fool had married well. He was married to a wise woman, Abigail. And when she hears what's going on, she very quickly acts to intervene. She puts together a peace offering and rides out to intercept David. She gives you know, hundreds of loaves of bread and wine, lamb all dressed up and ready for roasting, grain, cakes, figs. She really lays it on. And she goes out before David has even lifted his sword and she appeals with David to to de-escalate the crisis. Look at the heart of her speech in chapter 25, verse 30. She says, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord David, every good thing he promised concerning him. And when the Lord has appointed David ruler over Israel, my Lord David will not have on his conscience, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed, or of having avenged himself. Basically, she's saying, David, you don't want to become king and have this guilty conscience hanging over your head for what you did this day. And her speech has the desired effect. David's anger is pacified. The conflict is averted. Look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to me to meet me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment 
and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Now, within 10 days of that taking place, God takes Nabal out, but not by David's sword. Nabal has a heart attack and dies. And the chapter ends with David marrying Abigail. He also marries another woman as well, which was not a good move, but that's another story. Um, But I want to focus on Abigail. She is a beautiful peacemaker. And this is what Jesus calls his people to be. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the peacemakers. Or I want to take you to Romans 12 and a series of commands that were given uh, by God. Romans 12, 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone and do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, when we're involved in conflict, it is so easy. You know, we, we, we get fueled by that sense of injustice. And it is so easy to allow it to escalate for bitterness, offense, mistrust, animosity to take hold. But Jesus calls on us to short circuit that by being peacemakers, to do whatever is in our power to bring about a peaceful resolution to the conflict. And you see Abigail do that at great personal cost to herself, but what a wise woman she was. And what a difference she made to David, to herself and her whole household. I want to come on to the final reading. It's 1 Samuel chapter 26. Cut to the video again. Hi, my name's Sam, and we'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 1 to 12. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakua, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakua, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp, with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, Who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of a spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. All his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. 
but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So here we see David's robust conscience. Once again, Saul is on the hunt for David. Uh, He's kind of giving up the chase was short-lived. He's on the hunt for David. Once again, David sneaks up on Saul. This time, Saul is snoozing away. In fact, his whole army, thousands of men, are snoozing away. Uh, And once again, one of David's men is whispering. Verse 8, this is Abishai. Today, God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. The deed will be done so quickly. This time there is no hesitation from David. There is no arming and ahring. David wants to keep a clear conscience before God. Verse nine, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Can you see the clarity, the conviction that David has about what is right? I wonder if Abigail's words, <coughs> excuse me, I wonder if Abigail's words are still ringing in David's ears. Remember chapter 25, verse 31, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. So once again, David merely takes a souvenir. He takes Saul's spear and a jug of water and goes. And when David once again confronts Saul from a distance, Saul is once again convicted of his own guilt. Now, David acts with impressive godliness in this chapter. He has a robust conscience that trusts God and leaves vengeance in the hands of God. But tragically, it doesn't last for David. If you keep reading the story of Samuel through the end of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, you'll find that David does shed innocent blood in an awful way. And it doesn't come about through revenge. It comes about through adultery and him trying to cover up. Remember, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then David conspires to have Bathsheba's wife, uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed in battle, though he was innocent. And it raises for David the problem How do you cleanse a guilty conscience? Because he knows he has done a wicked thing in the sight of God. And ultimately, the stories of David point us forward, generation by generation, until Jesus, the ultimate descendant of David, arrives on the scene. Jesus not only maintained an utterly blameless conscience, but he provides cleansing for our guilty consciences. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. The blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. See, when David sinned against God, he cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God. Uh, He desperately wanted the cleansing of the guilty conscience because he knew he had done the wrong thing. And ultimately, David's prayer was fulfilled many hundreds of years later when Jesus died as a sacrifice for sins. And as we come to Jesus, so Jesus cleanses our consciences. He forgives. He washes away all guilt and shame so that in the eyes of God, we are whiter than snow. And Jesus not only cleanses us, but he provides us an example to follow. So 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. He suffered. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Praise God for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, your conscience matters. Your conscience matters because we want to live lives of righteousness in the sight of God. Uh, And so I want to encourage you to work hard at informing your conscience so that your conscience lines up with God's word and strive to keep a clear conscience, not seeking revenge and payback, not just pushing through to get the best outcome, even though you're going to do the wrong thing along the way. Be a peacemaker. Do what is right in God's eyes. But if you do stay in your conscience, come to Jesus. Receive cleansing and forgiveness through him. And that is what the Lord's Supper is all about. You see, on the night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples for a meal. And during the meal, he took the bread and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And after the meal, he took the cup. And he said, drink from this all of you. This Drink represents my blood poured out for you for forgiveness. Drink this in remembrance of me. One of the special things about gathering together face to face is getting to express our unity uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I long for that day when we can gather and eat bread and wine or juice, whatever we do, but when we can do it, as an expression of our unity through the blood of Jesus. But today, wherever you are, let's eat and drink in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ and give thanks in our heart for him.
So will you join me in eating and drinking? I'd love to lead us in prayer. Pray with me. God, our Father, today we confess our sin to you. We have done things we know in our hearts we should not have done. And we have left undone many things that we should have done. If not for Jesus, we would be stained by sin and guilt and shame. But we want to thank you so much for your son, for his life of integrity. Thank you for his compassion, his patience, the way he obeyed you, even in the face of suffering, the way he loved us to the very end, even dying on the cross in our place. Father, like David, we cry out to you this morning. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Please wash our consciences clean through the blood of Jesus. Please remove every stain of sin. Remove all our guilt and shame. And like David, we pray, renew a right spirit within me. Please change us so that we live like your son, Jesus, so that we imitate him, so that we serve and honour and obey him in all we do. And please give us the grace to be peacemakers, to put aside bitterness and revenge and to entrust our lives into your fatherly care. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, our hero, our king. Amen.